0: Hello and welcome to episode 73 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps.
1: Stanislav, how do you how do you feel about curry? Are you a curry curry
0: guy? I love curry. Indian curry, Thai curry, Yeah, I did.
1: I did did two different Thai curries. I got a green Thai curry and a red Thai curry. And I did a taste test. And I'll tell you what, the red curry won. Was it a blind taste test? It was not blind. I made it. So there was a lot of vested interest in both curries, honestly.
0: Yeah, but you could have, you know, closed your eyes while eating.
1: (laughs) That gets messy. I got fish sauce on the tablecloth.
0: Oh, that's the worst. Dave, the Godfather, Harburger, you're here. Tell us, how do you get fish sauce off a tablecloth?
2: I have no words for this. <laughs> Just <laughs> Shane, I barely have words either. Shane, we need to we need to talk about your selections for intro uh, material. Well, my cold open's the, not good. Yeah, <laughs> talk to me after after you don't like this. You
1: like my cold open, huh?
2: Sounded like it was a hot open. If it was a curry, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> this guy. On this week's episode, we break down some spicy, hot
0: lists. Almost as spicy as Shane's curry that popped up in the weekend's modern and pioneer challenges. Then we'll dive into a new level-up topic requested by one of our top-tier patrons from the Dive Down Nation, Cool Jake, who challenged us to analyze the concept of advantage in magic. So stay tuned for a very special segment that we're excited to call... How do I know if I'm winning? But first, some housekeeping. Shout out this week. Go to some very friendly reviews on our Apple podcasts. Thanks go out to Archickson's. I really should rehearse these before we read them on the radio, especially the ones that have like misplaced consonants.
2: But arc kick, uh, Is anyone else surprised that Elon Musk's child was able to do a podcast review so early in, in life and knows enough about... Magic the Gathering to get in here.
0: Well, wow, very topical humor, Dave. I understand that reference. Also, shout out to Zeta Base and Delver of Flavors. Thank you all for leaving some reviews for our podcast. It helps a lot. If you are a fan of the show and you haven't had a chance to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we hope you consider giving us a solid rating and review. It helps new people find us. It helps us know what people like. If you don't like the podcast, don't leave us a review. Just email us. We can talk in private. Besides your
1: words on a website, you can also support us via Patreon. You can join for as little as $1 an episode. And if you are a crazy person who likes us that much, you can also give us up to $15 an episode, which is what uh, Cool Jake did this week. He was our very first patron. Day one, Jake's been with us. He's a he's a friend of ours from back in the day in Chicago, so we appreciate him. But you don't have to be as generous as Jake. You can give us a buck, help us help help us keep going, help support us. For a dollar, you get access to the Dive Down Nation super secret Slack server. Uh, Three bucks, five bucks, eight bucks, you get cool pins, cool tokens, cool stickers, play mats, all kinds of cool stuff.
2: I like using, I love those play mats. All this being said, we know it's a weird time. And, uh, if you can't, don't worry about it. But if you want to hit us up at patreoncom slash the dive down. And finally, the dive down is brought to you in part by our friends at manatraders.com manatraders.com, the best place to rent magic online cards for whatever modern deck you want. Uh, Check them out. Other we use formats them. too. Oh sure, but I only care about one, and that is pioneer and modern. I'm going to call it. Those are two. Those are two it, formats, Dave. I'm, I'm calling it Myoneer now. Um, so, if you'd like to check out Manitraders.com and give a, support us a little bit through the affiliate program that they've blessed us with, check out uh, Manitraders.com and input the code The Dive Down, all one word, to get 15% off your first three months of rental cards and now it's time for us to get into the breakdown guess who was in charge of it this week it's our man stan on the news news desk the only one of us who actually is trained in any kind of journalism stan that's right i have
0: a bachelor's degree
1: dave didn't you didn't you edit your high school newspaper our high school newspaper my friend i was
2: the editor-in-chief of the high school newspaper i almost went to school for journalism yeah so close to being working for patch.com yep
0: Dave, did you know that I, too, was the editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper? No,
2: we've never talked about this before. Yeah, fun. I mostly joined the paper so that I could make some friends with the cool art kids and hang out in a uh, photo development room uh, and just, like, listen to Alice in Chains and and uh, take some, you know, work in, in a lab. So, Dave, I gotta, I gotta
1: take just a little sidebar here, okay? Are you, like, a, a dirt guy? Like, a
2: facelift guy? I mean, funny enough, I actually do not like the Allison Change that much. It was just a moment in time. Definitely of the Seattle era there. I was a Soundgarden person.
1: Oh, man. Super Unknown Slays.
2: Yeah. And I like Bad Motorfinger too. So
0: cool. Thanks, guys.
2: <laughs> Way more. I love that a lot of the notes for Shane, Shane's Patreon plug said brief next to it, the Manitrators plug said brief to it. Now here we are. Just a lot of digressions already.
0: A lot of sidebars. Yeah. All right. Breakdown this week. This is a big one for Myoneer fans because we looked at both the Pioneer and the Modern Challenge to do a slightly different breakdown this week, trying to mix it up, try to do something maybe even a tad bit more ambitious, and specifically calling out some of the interesting spicy off-the-beaten-path decks that you may or may not be familiar with, but they're doing something a little different than the common contenders of the metagame right now. So, we're just going to do a little sampling from the weekend's tournaments, starting with the Pioneer Challenge that took place on May 11th. And the f- the first deck I want to talk about here is the first place deck from someone by the name of R.C. Merriam. Very familiar name. I wonder if they, hmm. I wonder if that's someone I know.
2: I wonder if they like R.C. Cola. <laughs> My favorite off-brand of Cola. Yeah.
0: Yeah, RC Miriam was playing Abzan Rally, featuring Luris and Pioneer.
1: Well, oh, wasn't Ross playing that last week? You don't think.
2: Could it be? I, Man, maybe that is maybe that's a big fan. I never pegged Ross as an RC Cola guy.
0: There's several of these rally decks within the Pioneer Challenge this weekend. And I think it was last week, maybe it was two weeks ago, but I sort of misattributed this. This deck as a go-wide strategy, so I, I wanted to flag the deck this week to point out two things. First, it's, it's not really a go-wide deck, even though it, it can get a bunch of creatures on the board. That's, that's not exactly what's going on in here. I thought it would be fun to maybe clear clear the air. Yeah, I wasn't going to say anything. Nobody tweeted at me.
2: In true dive-down fashion, the first thing that we want to do is <laughs> issue a correction to what we said last <laughs> week. Perfect.
0: But, you know, also, it seems like this deck is actually getting more popular every week. And it's now starting to put up some pretty serious results in in some of these online tournaments. So let's just take a quick peek at what's actually going on here. Because it's kind of a combo deck that relies on cycling creatures in and out of the graveyard and draining the opponent using cards like Zulaport Cutthroat, Cruel Celebrant, and uh, Priest of the Forgotten Gods. So if anyone's familiar with The card Blood Artisan and Aristocrats-style magic decks, that's essentially what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something to be said about actually turning creatures sideways in this deck, specifically because it features a creature called Cartel Aristocrat, which can both gain protection from any color and swing in for damage to pressure opponents a little bit while playing into the graveyard plan. You sacrifice a creature to Aristocrat's ability, giving it pro from any color— go in, chip away your opponent's life total that way. But honestly, I wouldn't call this an aggro deck because Aristocrats decks are all about trying to accrue damage from sacrificing creatures to themselves, trying to get creatures back. And if this is a strategy that you like in other older formats, other standard sets, and you're trying to look up something new to play in Pioneer, this seems like one of those up-and-comers that's worth keeping an eye on. And if you're playing against the deck, make sure you're bringing in some graveyard hate.
1: Yeah, this is the kind of strategy, and I think Ross pegged it well when he talked about it on uh, Pioneer Cast, I think last week. It's just the kind of strategy that not everyone's going to like, because a lot of people just want to play fair decks. They want to play decks that you play to the board. Um, they're trying to win through traditional means, and these solid decks just typically don't, but... If you like it, and a lot of people historically seem to really get into those aristocrat-style Sacrifice engine decks, this is doing really well right
0: now. I do find it pretty fun to play, especially online.
2: I'm excited that this deck exists. I feel like it's been waiting for a while to happen in Pioneer. And so I don't know what the tipping point was exactly here, if it's just the right meta for it, or if Fiend Artisan powered it up enough. But uh, it's a powerful core. It's good to see a deck around it.
0: I think Lurus is pretty good here, too, just because it recycles all of your creatures that you're trying to get back into the graveyard over and over again. Mm. That's so weird that I would be good in this. Yeah. And you don't really even have to stretch your mana base to cast Lurus. Next up, the third place deck. Same pioneer event by a player named Snapcaster Bolt, who is on Jeskai Fires featuring Yurion. And this is not the Just Jeskai Fires deck that we were talking about last week, which was a more Planeswalker-based control strategy. There's a little bit of that here, but there's also something a little novel happening here. And this deck got a little buzz over the weekend because of it, since not only did it show up in Pioneer tournaments, but it's basically a standard deck. And you may have heard about it because this is the Agent of Treachery deck that had a bunch of people complaining online including standard players who are mad at Agent of Treachery and or Teferi, Time Reveler.
2: I'm excited you're talking about this because I saw these lists pop up and was like, what am I looking at? <laughs> Why is there is Luca in here? What is it getting? Is it that good to get Agent of Treachery? So lay it on me, Stan.
0: Sure, let's start by defining Agent of Treachery because this is a standard card, so some people might not be familiar with it.
1: Stan, did you know... That all standard cards are also legal in Pioneer
0: and Modern. Shane, just because we could doesn't mean we should. That's fair. Agent of Chetri, 5UU for a human rogue. When agent enters the battlefield, gain control of target permanent. That's any permanent. At the beginning of your end step, if you control three or more permanents, you don't own, draw three cards. I need to say 2-3.
1: So you play it for the body.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That's a good rate for a seven mana blue creature. Yeah.
2: I have a t-shirt that says I play it for the body.
0: (laughs) I think there's a couple interesting things just happening with this creature. All right, let's ignore the mana cost for a second. A, you're stealing those permanents for as long as the game is going on. Opponent doesn't get those permanents back even if Agent Chetri dies. They're yours. Maybe forever. If you forget to give them back to your opponent and you're using the same sleeves. Put it in yours, it's mine. Here's the other thing. This this last line of text, if you control three or more permanents, you don't own, draw three cards. That happens repeatedly. So for as many turns as you own those three permanents and an agent is on the board, you just keep drawing more cards. And the more agents you have, the more cards you draw. So, I know what you're saying, but dive down, are people really casting seven drops in Pioneer? Uh, not exactly. And you're probably also asking does this deck have a bunch of ways to steal opponents' permanence? And again, the answer is no. Instead, it's basically a control deck with this little minor Luka combo element. Luka being the copper coat outcast we know and love now in modern and standard and Pioneer, finally. So you're asking, you hear about Luka, you probably want to know, does this deck have a ton of creatures? Once again, the answer is no, it does not. It only runs somewhere from like two to four of these agents. Meaning, if you have a Luka, you're basically never ticking it up for any reason, unless you're like trying to maybe protect your Luka for, for some reason. Instead... You're getting Sacrifice Fodder to use Luca's minus three ability so that when you sac a creature to Luca, you're always finding the Agent of Treachery. And the creatures that you're sacrificing it are probably coming either from your Castle Ardenvale, which can make one ones, or, Dave, are you listening? You can also get shark tokens off your mm-hmm. Shark Typhoon by making creatures when you draw cards. Mm-hmm. Are you are you following along so far?
2: I am following for the most part.
0: I know you had questions, and and last but not least, this deck also has Gideon of the Trials, which can be a creature. I'm willing to bet you don't want to sack your Gideons to your Luka. That feels like a corner case, but I'm willing to be wrong.
2: I think you might do it more than more than I'm just guessing. It feels like you might do that more than it seems like.
0: Perhaps I guess it depends on the board state and or like the game state.
2: Also, last one I would point out is that birth the birth of Miletus creates a creature that you can sacrifice. It creates an O4 wall with the second chapter of its saga. So there might be some something going on there as well.
0: Yeah, good catch. And of course this deck is also running Urion and Yurion is important here for a couple reasons. It's, it's doing the same Yurion stuff that we were seeing in Pioneer last week, where it's blinking and bouncing permanents that are like Oaths and Omens and, and Enchantments, and maybe sometimes it's resetting your Planeswalkers. But you can also use Urion to blink your Agent of Treachery, so that you then steal another permanent, and also potentially set it up so that you're now holding three of your opponent's permanents, drawing more cards that way. And if you have to, you can start turning that Yorion sideways and and win the game
2: eventually. Yeah, you can also bounce it with uh, with Teferi Time Raveler. And I think there's one little card that you've left off of here that's worth mentioning, and that's Fire of Invention, or Fires of Invention, is kind of the actual broken card that's in this deck, right?
1: Yeah, all of a sudden, it seems like people figured out, I mean, I'm guessing that it's the combination of Yorion and Fires, but... I mean, people knew that Fires was going to be something good, but it hasn't really been outrageous
0: yet. Well, it's not a fair card, is it? Four mana to essentially produce like twice as much as your mana can usually produce in terms of resources? Well, I think the crazy thing is is uh, blinking it. Because I think when you
1: blink it, it sort of resets it. So when you cast a Yorion... It blinks the fires, and it allows you to cast even more spells per turn, is, I believe, the super broken interaction.
2: Yikes. Okay. That's one key interaction that I hadn't quite realized would work. Seems good. If I'm wrong, tweet at me. But this is, this is what I
1: remember hearing on some other podcasts this week, and I was like, oh, that does sound broken.
0: Yeah. So, Just sky Fires of Adventure, featuring Luca and Agent of Treachery. Stay on the lookout.
2: I just wanted to point out real quick that this is we, we've talked about the first and third place deck so far. In fourth place is Caleb Shearer on Lotus Breach, just another notable player who is in the top eight of this tournament. I also lost to Caleb uh, when I was playing uh, last week when I was playing Garuda.
1: Look at those I named Robin.
2: <sighs> and he was on Lotus Breach, and it was not even close.
0: All right, let's zoom down a little bit to the 24th place deck by a player named Jackal, who is on Black, White, Doom Foretold, featuring Yorion. And this is a deck that I think has been on the edges of Pioneer for a little while, but I honestly can't recall if we've ever mentioned it or brought it up. So that's why I wanted to bring it up, because this is a strategy that relies on a card called Demonic Pact from Magic Origins that people will sometimes try to build around because it's such an unusual effect. And I want to I give it a little shout-out. So Demonic Pact, two black-black for an enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, choose one that hasn't been chosen. Pact deals four damage to any target, and you gain four life. Target opponent discards two cards. Draw two cards. You lose the game. And a couple things to note here, that you can reset this card by bouncing it using Yurion. So Urian does the trick, essentially saves your butt from dying that way. You can also bounce it using a card called Flicker of Fate, which does exactly that. It flickers your fate with this card and prolongs your slow eventual death. You can also get around the pact using Gideon of the Trials, which is in this deck. If you get the Gideon emblem and that last demonic pact trigger pops off, you don't actually lose the game. And finally, you can sacrifice it using your own Doom Foretold, which is an enchantment I'm not going to read. But long story short, classic Spice Wreck material in this black-white deck. This is one of those things that is so fringy that I don't think about it often. So it's hard for me to evaluate these types of decks. But I'm curious, do you guys have any reactions to either this strategy or other Doom Foretold black-white strategies you may have seen?
1: I've definitely played against it. And I can definitely control the game and really get a lot of value off Demonic Pact. Um, Even before Yorian, I was seeing this deck, and it certainly makes sense to have a Yorian in there to 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 flicker the Demonic Pact to get even greater value.
2: Yeah, this placed in the Pioneer Challenge, I believe, a couple of weeks ago as well. We there was a little we had a very small mention of it a couple weeks ago so it's interesting to see i mean demonic pact was definitely a card that people wanted to try to do stuff with and so it's cool to see people finding ways i mean it's a different kind of strategy
1: life uh finds a way
2: i love that sigh in the middle was very uh very gold bloom so good job <laughs> yeah. okay that's the pioneer challenge spice rack for the week
0: now let's jump over to the modern challenge that also took place on May 11th. Jumping all the way down to the 25th place deck by Ac underscore S, who is running Red White Equipment featuring Luris. And this is a very aggressive deck. Of that, I am sure. But it's doing some pretty fun looking equipment shenanigans to win with a card called Colossus Hammer a card that I don't think has ever been mentioned on our podcast. So that's why I'm going to read it. Colossus Hammer costs one mana to cast, one generic mana for an artifact equipment. Equipped creature gets plus 10, plus 10, and loses flying. It's too heavy. Can't carry that. It's a heavy hammer. And then it costs eight to equip. That's it. So Yeah, that's it. And, And now you're asking, Stan, are people actually paying eight mana to equip this thing in Modern? And the answer is a very confident and resounding yes. Actually, no, that never happens. I think it literally never happens. Instead, Hammer combos with 12 other cards in the deck that functionally do the exact same thing, which is cheat on the cost of equipment abilities. In this case, we're looking at cards like Sigarda's Aid, Core Outfitter, and Magnetic Theft. To all do the same thing, which is equip the hammer to whatever creature happens to be around for either one or two mana.
2: Magnetic Theft is one of the worst named cards, by the way, because it says it implies that you can steal someone else's equipment with it. So much so that they had to put reminder text on it that says control of the equipment doesn't change. (laughs) It's pretty bad. Wow.
0: Embarrassing. I've sort of buried the lead with this deck. Because the thing that I find most interesting about this is that it can actually threaten a kill on turn two. Hmm. If you play a turn one Core Duelist, which is just a 1-1 one, one for 1, that reads when Core Duelist is equipped, it gets double strike. Then on turn two, you play Sigarda's Aid, which lets you both cast equipment artifacts at instant speed. And then when an artifact equipment hits the battlefield, you can automatically equip it to a creature so on turn two you play aid you attack with your core duelist at some point before damage is dealt you play your colossus hammer at instant speed thanks to sigarda's aid you attach it for free and now you're dealing 22 damage
2: on turn two wow yeah huh it's not that hard of a draw to get i mean it's three cards Uh uh-huh uh so not impossible, but uh, yeah, that's pretty interesting. I saw, I believe Tom Ross tweeting about this deck because he was playing it recently, and he called it the new infect.
0: That's exactly what it looks like. I kind of feel like more people should just play this deck. Am I crazy to think that this is just like better than it looks? Potentially.
2: <laughs>
1: I mean, combo, combos like this, combos like this are are fragile-ish in a way, right? where it's like they're relying
2: on a little bit of surprise, being a little bit fringe, and then just blowing people out. You do have a little bit of interaction or protection, I guess, really, in the sense that you have uh, you got four Giver of Runes and four Spell Skite, which are things that can help you with mm-hmm. the um, you know, the battles where you have uh, some removal coming in. I don't know. It's a cool deck. Turn two kills are fun. A lot of redundancy in this deck, too, which I think
0: makes it like, look like it's built well. It just seems like a really clean list. Something to check out if you're looking for something spicy and you like to play aggressive decks
2: that win fast or die trying. Can I throw out a couple little notes about this? The top eight of this, uh, this one. Two things I wanted to look at. One is that the first place deck was Mono Green Tron. <laughs> Surprise! Haven't seen that in a minute. Nothing weird about this list at all. Just totally stock Mono Green Tron. I still think it has game. It still has game. It'll always have game. Yeah. It's a good deck. The second place list was Sodak on Adnaz, which is interesting to see him playing a different deck this this, uh, this go-round.
0: I just want to plant a little seed. We should do a deck dive on Adnaz this year. Because this deck has gotten so good lately, thanks to Thassa's
2: Oracle it's popular right now for sure so i wonder if it's worth taking a look at in the next couple of weeks hey tweet at us or email us if you want to see us do a dive down on ad for some reason it's a deck that doesn't have a, a companion in it
1: hold oh, on in stands in stands uh, heuristic of of companions
2: uh echoing truth is is a companion that's the one It's pretty funny. Uh, The one thing I wanted to point out really quickly was there's a bunch of burned decks in the top eight still, but the sixth place deck is a more kind of like prowess style deck with a very weird and spicy card in its creature pack, and that is Seeker of the Way. Mm
1: Whoa, 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 whoa. Is this this con standard?
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. A great standard. Uh, Yeah, great standard and a card that I loved to play. And definitely something I guess I would take a look at is some main deck tech against Burn, perhaps. Uh, that's still a little bit plan, but uh, pretty wild to see that card in the top eight of a Modern Tournament. Are you,
0: are you done hijacking my breakdown? Please proceed. Thank you. All right. One last deck I want to talk about, and this is actually from the Modern Challenge on May 10th. So this occurred on Saturday. And it's the 6th place deck by friend of the show, Aspiring Spike, who is on Blue-White Miracles featuring Kahira, the Orphan Guard, but really featuring Counterbalance. Little background. Because of this deck, it, was, it felt fun being a Magic fan last week. Because I, I think it was Thursday or Friday, Ever tweets, I think Counterbalance is good and modern. The next day, he decides to put his money where his mouth is, And registers for the modern challenge playing blue-white counterbalance. He goes like 3-0, 4-0. I'm watching the stream. He's streaming this tournament. He actually says, I'm going to call my shot. I think I'm going to top eight this tournament. Then there's like a couple (laughs) hiccups along the way. He ends the tournament in the X2 bracket. I don't think he thought he was going to make top eight. Then he makes top eight. At that point, I'm not even sure if he was streaming Because I I think when he thought he wasn't going to make top eight, he cut his stream and I turned off the television. But then I was looking at results and here he is. And as a result, counterbalance has kind of become a tiny bit of a conversation piece within the counter, spell, control, community, in modern. And I want to read this card. Counterbalance, blue, blue for an enchantment. Whenever an opponent casts a spell, you may reveal the top card of your library. If you do counter that spell if it has the same converted mana cost as the revealed card. So why is this actually playable now? Why did Everett make such a bold claim? And it's because of two new pieces of technology available to us, relatively new at least. One is Omen of the Sea, and one is Mystic Sanctuary, giving us instant speed ways to manipulate the top of our library, sometimes in response to the spells our opponent is casting, when you actually have a counterbalance on the board. Smart. Pretty good. Who needs top?
2: Yeah, I was just going to mention, you know, Stan, are you familiar with the terror that this deck was in, that counterbalance was in Legacy and also, I believe, in Standard? As well. I think that Counterbalance and Sensei's Divining Top were both in the same standard. I'm looking at some lists right now to see, try to make sure. I'm not totally sure. So this came out in Cold Snap, just so you know. It, Cold Snap. And, and top was what? Kamagawa Block? Kamagawa, yep. At any rate, in Legacy, Countertop was a staple control deck for a long, long time. And so I think that when Modern started, you know, part of the reason that Sensei's Dividing Top was banned in Modern from the get-go, other than the fact that it takes forever to play with Sensei's Dividing Top, is because they did not want that deck to appear in Modern. Jace was banned, of course, as well, but they still thought that that wasn't going to be enough to make Countertop not work. And so it's very interesting to see many, many, many years later, Counterbalance find a moment in the meta to be... Uh, getting some prominence. And it is a really strong card if you can make it work. It's a super interactive kind of thing where you have to plan out all the different ways to get the right casting cost card on top of your deck. But um, very cool stuff. I, I was super excited when I saw this list come out. And it felt like a real like next level moment when I saw... Aspiring Spike tweeting about it was just kind of like that's amazing. I hope he's right. Yeah,
0: Aspiring Spike has had a really exciting couple of days. Just earlier today, he qualified for his
2: first ever Pro Tour. Nice work, Everett. It's not his first ever. I, I by the way, he he tweeted later that he said that uh, he's back on the Pro Tour. So oh. I don't remember when his first one was, but it sounded like maybe it'd been a minute. But I, I don't think it's his. I don't think it's his first.
0: Oh, my mistake. Well, he qualified for the Pro Tour again. Yeah, still good. I hope it's a paper Pro Tour. Don't we all? Yeah. So congrats to Evert, both for this, you know, fun deck and your success as a competitor. That's about it. That's all I got. We can talk about how this deck is running a companion just for the heck of it. (laughs) Because why not? Let's put a creature in there. But let's move on.
2: Yeah, Stan, that was awesome. I really enjoyed the tour of Sweet Decks.
0: Thanks. I need a break. I need to take a sip of water. My throat is parched because after this, we're going to dive into a level up topic. We haven't done those in a minute and we have a lot to say because I'm always wondering, how do I know if I'm winning at magic after I've lost the match and signed the slip?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's the wrong time to wonder about that. Oh, good to know. First level up. Think about it during the game. Stay with us. and we're back. Thank you for joining us this week on The Dive Down where we're going to have a little bit of a interesting, I hope, but abstract discussion about the idea of advantage in a game of magic, what that means. And you know, in typical kind of fashion, I wanted to think about a way that we could kind of center this on a question that all of us could try to answer as part of it. And I think what it boils down to me is that What I thought about a lot was, how do I know if I am winning a game of Magic while I am playing the game of Magic? I think it sounds like a really weird question, but if you think about all the times that you've played games where you're a little bit unsure about what the board state is adding up to right now and you don't know what to do next, I think that's where you're having a little bit of that disconnect between understanding your position in the game and what you're supposed to do next so that you can successfully... execute and finish the game with a win. And so this idea of how do I know if I'm winning is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to do this a little bit kind of like, I want it to be a little bit of a freewheeling discussion between the three of us. We don't really have like the grand unified theory of magic to present to everybody today, which is what what I think something. Yeah, I know. I tried to get it in the notes, but it didn't fit. We ran out of KBs on our Google Drive.
0: Mm. Yeah, because cause our doc for this episode is like 20 pages long. Yeah, good good luck making it in time here. Yeah. We had the, a lot to uh, the, say on the topic of winning for a group of losers.
2: That's Well, that's what I was going to say, too, is that I think that if you're trying to, you know, we are three pretty average players, right? Stan is the most average. I'm the least average of us. <laughs> and proud of it. you're proud of it. Shane is the average average. And, um, you know, so let's talk a little bit about it. When you're sitting in the middle of a game of magic, how, how do you know if you're winning? I think the most obvious thing people think about is like, do you compare life totals? Well, no, that doesn't really fit. Is it by comparing creatures on board? That eh, doesn't really work, especially in modern either, right? And so I think it's something that's a lot more kind of subtle and unknowable. And, you know, of course, this episode was inspired by the patron that we talked about earlier, Cool Jake, who has been along with us for a long time, close friend. And the thing that's the most interesting about Jake is that he is an extremely thoughtful person. And so when he we approached him about what episode he would like us to do for this kind of like Patreon award, he kind of just gave us a little bit of a discussion prompt and didn't really say, well, I want to hear you talk about this deck or something like that. The concept of advantage in magic has always, I think, been an interesting thing to him. He was interested in us talking about what it means to have the advantage. But I think that what we want to talk about too is that, but also how do you even know if you have the advantage in a game of magic and and what does that look like? And what are different things you can think about to make that happen? And how does the recognition of that possession or lack of advantage give you Something else that you can do? Like, how can you turn this thinking into action? And I think that's the big, the big thing. So, I think that instead of our usual info dump, we're going to try this discussion format and see what we can learn together. Now, all of us have notes in here for several different question prompts that I put in. I have not read Stan or Shane's notes in advance.
1: Oh my God. And so,
2: you might hear a lot of kind of confused guffaws from me, and, <laughs> and that's good because <laughs> we're all trying to learn together here. So let's try to think. Yeah. And the big thing here is that one of the most interesting things, Jake's submission to us about what to talk about, you know, he said, I want to try to think about how to talk explicitly or think explicitly about things that are often handled by intuition.
1: Yeah.
2: And I think that's awesome for a game like magic, right? Intuition is great but intuition real intuition useful intuition really only comes with experience right and so through like rational discussion examination of your behaviors that's how you can turn intuition into something that is good and reliable where maybe years from now you'll be able to make it make a move without really knowing why and have it be the right move
1: yeah i think People who listen to podcasts probably have listened to like limited resources. And I think some of those sort of most famous level up episodes there have been some of LSV's heuristics episodes, right? Like how do you develop a rule for what to do in a certain situation or as close to a rule as you can get? And I think intuition is, I think, what informs heuristics, intuition and experience like Dave mentioned. And intuition is a really important part of any card game you play or a lot of just games you play because there's there's hidden information and there's shared information right and so you can't always act on only shared information because there's lots of hidden information in a in a card game and so and and you have an explicit match clock on magic online Or you have a turn-based clock in a game like Hearthstone or Magic Arena or Legends of Runeterra. You have an expected speed of play in paper. So you can't go down every channel, every lane of potential play. You have to intuit what you can within a given time frame. And so you have to practice and have to put yourself in a mindset to develop these rules and ways to inform and strengthen your intuition.
0: And really, the thing we're talking about when we refer to intuition, at least, I think is a sort of shorthand that we can sort of fall back on to either help inform the decisions we're about to make in a game, but also it's our kind of understanding of where we are in a game, as Shane mentioned, when we don't have any information. It's it's kind of like that feeling you get when you look at your hand and you say, I'm going to win this, even though there's still like several turns left, or maybe you've just draw on your opening seven or something, but those are feelings and we're going to try to get to some of the things that inform those feelings and things that we can do to improve those feelings and how to consider the reps you're making in specific games or in specific matchups that can make some of your intuitions more based on wisdom.
2: Yeah. I think for me to boil it down, we want to get to that moment where science turns into art. Like that's, that's the key, right? Because being rational is awesome, but there are situations every time I play Magic where I'm like, I cannot necessarily rationally perceive and puzzle out every single aspect of this. And more experienced players than me, frankly, better players than me, you know, have that kind of like accrual of experience that lets you figure out what to do in a situation that's still correct when they don't have enough information, as Stan said. So that's what we want to try to do. Let's break it down and try to figure out if we can turn some science into art here
1: that's uh it's ambitious but i like it
2: yeah you know we're not going to solve it today but hopefully people enjoy the discussion you know what if you have thoughts tweet at us hit us up in the slack channel get on reddit and talk to us we definitely would love to talk to you about what you think about uh, some of these things
0: and also let's just open the door to maybe we do answer it maybe we hit a home run knock it out of the park, and we actually find a unified theory by the end of this episode, I think it's possible. Who, yeah. knows, what's, who, who knows what comes out of the Socratic method?
2: Exactly. All right, so the first question I had for everybody, to keep with this kind of like how to discuss an abstract thing, how do you even approach thinking about something as abstract as the idea of advantage? Like what, what's possible, what needs to happen in order to have a discussion like this and have it make sense?
1: I think there's there's kind of like a few pillars of the stool here, right? Like so what can we hope to understand in a game as varied and as dynamic as magic? And I think it's kind of looking at what does advantage look like? Like, is it a universal? Is it deck dependent? Is it meta dependent? Is it matchup dependent? And sort of look at it through those lenses. Like what does it actually what can actually look like? And then once you have it, what are the various opportunities you gain by having advantage at all? You, I think we're also planning on looking at ways you can regain it once you've lost it, and then how to avoid losing it if you do have it. Like those are, those are, there's, there's universals to what you can do with advantage of magic, and then there's some less vague, I mean, there's some less universal stuff about what it actually is.
2: Yeah. And I think the big thing in a discussion like this is like if you want to turn something that is sort of abstract into something concrete a couple of things that we want to try to do while we're talking here is we want to make sure that there we talk about things that are observable, right? As much as we can, we want to try to not talk about feelings in this discussion because we're trying to figure out things that make us have better feelings. And then the second part is, you know, if we want to see how something performs, we have to think about it happening over time and how to measure things over time. Like You can't really judge the performance of something unless you have data to be able to have it perform over time.
0: Yeah, the other thing I think we're going to try to do is look at some of the ways that people talk about advantage already, whether they're referring to it explicitly or referring to it implicitly. We'll see some specific examples where advantage is already coming up and maybe even do a bit of a gut check to see whether or not that actually lines up with our own experiences playing Magic. I think I'd also maybe start by approaching the concept in a focused way and then zoom out. You know, for some people, it may be helpful to look at what does advantage look like for a very specific deck or a specific type of deck before considering what that word means in broad terms. Because an aggressive deck would measure advantage very differently than a control deck. And recognizing the difference between those could then contribute to a more holistic understanding of the concept down the line.
2: Yeah, though I would love to be able to try to find in this discussion a way to relate those two concepts, right? Like, is there a way that we can have the way advantage is described in an aggro deck relate to the way it's described in a control deck? And I think that one thing that might help us with that is if we think about, like, why don't we talk a little bit about what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think about having an advantage in magic? Like, what what is, what is the stuff that you do now, right? So I'll start, I'll give an example. The first thing I think of every time when I think about having an advantage in a game of magic and the behavior that lines up with me is card advantage.
1: Well, yeah, that's, that's your thing.
2: Yeah, it is my thing. And I, I hope that you guys brought your things to this discussion as well. <laughs> Maybe it's Stan's thing, too. So how do you
1: how do you describe card advantage, Dave?
2: Well, I mean, I, I just, the, behaviorally, when I'm playing a game of Magic, I constantly look at the number of cards I have in my hand and the number of cards that my opponent has in their hand. Constantly. I go back, I check those two things back and forth, even to the point where like, you know, you guys have played me in paper before. I might ask it like randomly out of the blue in the middle of a situation that doesn't seem like it has any bearing on anything. I'm just like, how many cards do you have in your hand? Yeah. How many cards do you have in your hand? Like it's the first thing that I think of before I do anything in a game of Magic. And me knowing that I have more cards in hand than you do feels like a major block as far as like establishing if I have the advantage in a game. Might be kind of old school, but that's where I start. Yeah, I think
1: that's I mean that's definitely one aspect of advantage for sure because it's a game of cards. And the more cards that you can draw and have the opportunity to cast is typically going to be one of the primary advantages in any game of Magic. That's why one of the reasons that companions are so powerful, because it's just a built-in extra card that you don't have to draw.
2: Yeah. So Shane, when you think about this same question, what is the first one that you think of? Probably board advantage, because a lot of the, the decks
1: that I play are are creature-based and board-based. And so it's a really easy visual representation of advantage, right? And it's not always accurate because you can be well ahead on board but not actually be advantaged in the game. Um, I think that's sort of a classic way that people would maybe assess advantage in Magic. Like, you know, a a kitchen table uh, player is likely going to be playing to the board a lot and have a lot of creature interactions. Limited is very board-based. So you can kind of assess your advantage on the board and Limited, I think, more often than perhaps the Modern and Pioneer, at least. It's easy to say, like, I have four creatures. My opponent has one. I have the advantage. And I think it's a component of advantage. Because if your deck's designed around leveraging creatures to push damage in invalidate your opponent's more expensive cards. Your stuff maybe costs less than the removal they're using. That's kind of one of the things that popped into my head immediately.
2: Stan, what's the first thing that you think about when you think about this question? What are, what are you doing in your game that you know you're doing?
0: Card advantage is one of them. And, and specifically thinking about how many cards I've seen or have access to versus my opponent. And part of that I think is speaks to the type of decks that I play because I like playing control deck sometimes. But another one that actually comes up, you know, fairly often for me is what Shane just touched on, which is resource and mana advantage. And this is a lesson that I learned probably actually playing mono red in standard years ago and thinking about what it means to invest a certain amount of resources into a creature or invest a certain amount of mana, you know, philosophy of fire style to actually pressure an opponent's life total. And think about that Delta specifically between how much I'm spending toward pressuring an opponent or putting down a threat versus what my opponent may or may not be spending to answer my threat and, and vice versa. You know, if my opponent spends two mana on a creature and I deal with that creature using one mana, that's a small advantage I've gathered that, in general, could then accrue toward an advantageous stage in the game for me.
1: Yeah, that's what really I think magic is all about, is like efficient use of resources and efficient use of turns. Like, well, those resources could be all sorts of things, right? It's cards, it's mana, it's time, it's life total. And and you mentioned the philosophy of fire type stuff where I think life advantage is kind of the second one that popped into my mind, right? <laughs>
2: Well, I think it's interesting that that wasn't primary for any of us, though, right? Like, none of us said the first thing I do is compare life totals to see if I feel like I'm ahead or not. Why do you think that is, Shane? I
1: think it's because it's one of the first things—I think if you ask a new player who's ahead, many of them, especially maybe like a younger player, would be like, okay, well, I have 20 life, they have 10, I'm ahead. Because that's sort of the easiest number to look at. And and you know it's like you know you look at a video game you're like Link has half a heart left, he's in bad shape. I'd be better if I had three hearts. Um, and but what I think's interesting though is as as you become a more experienced player, you learn the classic adage: you know, life is a resource. Winning a game at one life is the same as winning it as tw- at twenty. So you begin to understand that simply looking at your life total doesn't really relate to the actual game state in front of you, necessarily. But what's I think is interesting is that having a life advantage does allow you to pressure your opponent in certain ways that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And that's kind of the entire thing that Burn operates on. Like, a Burn strategy is about pressuring the opponent's life total to make them have to make worse decisions. To have to spend cards dealing, you know, spend spend spells dealing with your... Uh, creatures that are pressuring them, have to um, spend a counter spell that costs three on a spell that you paid one for, for example. You're able to not block uh, your opponent's creatures because you're at 18 and they're at three. They're not maybe not even able to attack because they can't lose those blockers and allow you to swing back in. If you have three creatures to their one, you can just throw a couple of them into the into the wood chipper and get that last point of damage in. So it's all about, you know, or, or like or making them have to play the board rather than play a planeswalker. That doesn't affect the board or something like that. So that's something that I think life advantage helps with.
2: So we have cards advantage. We have board advantage, creature position kind of advantage. We have life advantage. We have mana advantage and resource advantage, which is kind of like what Sam was talking about. Is there a way, is there a common denominator amongst all of these that might, because it's so many different things, do you think that there's a way that we can talk about all these in a a way that's related to each other that helps them add up to something? And the first thing that crossed my mind when I thought about this kind of idea of trying to level, get one level above all of these different things that we see evidence for is time. You know, do you have, is all of, are all of these different aspects evidence of, you know, having advantage in current resources, which is kind of like mana and lands, future resources through card advantage, cards and hands, past resources, which I think is kind of an interesting twist on the idea of mana efficiency, that kind of stuff where it's kind of like, well, if I've spent more mana, that means that I've had advantage in the past up until now. Yes, yeah. I mean, that was the first thing that I thought of was that, you know, Trying to capture an, an overall advantage in a game of magic might be really tied up with time above everything else.
1: Yeah, that's because that's the most finite resource, right? Is like each turn. And so, and built into that turn is your mana you have available to you. And so, Stan and, and I both talked about this kind of earlier, which is the concept of like mana advantage which I think is, is tied into one of the advantages that I was thinking about, like board advantage. So if I spend one mana on a Champion of the Parish, my opponent is pressured by it. It becomes a 3-3, three, three, a 4-4. Four, four. They have to spend mana on an Abrupt Decay. Maybe they spend mana on an Assassin's Trophy. I even get a land out of it. I gained some tiny advantage because they spent one more piece of mana, and they spent, and they even gave me a card out of that transaction. Uh, and so that's the you know a little tiny advantage for me. And that's especially important in the early portion of the game. so that kind of that that's something to think about where some decks develop their advantage early, and we'll talk about this later, but some decks develop that advantage later. So I think that's kind of one of the first. Sort of lenses that I was looking at advantage in is when am I developing my advantage? Is it easier for me to do that early? Does it happen sort of in the middle of the game, or does it happen maybe all at once towards the late part of the game?
0: So here I think is maybe one of the struggles with just looking at it in these sort of vague terms and thinking about it kind of as a superstructure of you know advantage from ten thousand miles above sea level.
2: It was a great Brian Eno record.
0: Thank you. Different decks accrue advantage over time in several different ways. And to me, it was really hard for me to kind of think about, like, how do we look at advantage holistically? Because I couldn't really shake this concept of the matchup lottery and the paper-scissor-rock element of Magic the Gathering. Because I think that's when you start to actually get to, like, the more concrete terms of how one deck may or may not have advantage over the other. And it's not because the paper style deck is just obviously always better than the rock style deck. It's because the paper style deck is able to accrue advantage almost every turn in enough different axes that it can overcome whatever advantage the rock style deck is trying to accrue on its own axes, if that makes sense. And and it might not and we'll get into more detail later on i think but i don't think we can talk about you know one single unifying concept of advantage because there's different ways to accrue advantage on any given deck even the burn deck that wants to pressure life total and gain advantage via life total it still thinks about what card advantage means through that specific lens
1: yeah it's really important point stan is that i think that no deck has a single point of advantage is looking to develop. They're, they're really tied together. So Burned, for example, is going to develop advantage in terms of mana because their stuff costs very cheap compared to what many opponents are doing to counteract that strategy. They're developing a life advantage and they're developing, hopefully, virtual card advantage by spending all of their cards and killing their opponent before they can deploy all the cards they even drew. So in the classic control versus burn strategy, you're hoping to have your control opponent finish with three cards left in hand. So they were effectively down three cards in that matchup because they simply couldn't deploy them.
2: Yeah, but I do think, you know, like trying to get back to that initial question of how do I know if I'm winning in a yeah. game, right? Like trying to make this all actionable. I think we we do need to try to help people figure out a little bit of like, what's the bottom line here? Like, what are the things that I think about? Even if we kind of go, this is the rotation of things that you should get to. Like, that's what I. That seems like that's the most interesting fulfillment of kind of like the discussion prompt. If we can get there. But I totally agree that, you know, one thing that we've taught we're starting to touch on a little bit here through this discussion is like, you know, we have all these individual advantages, and we haven't really talked about how they ladder up into some realistic version of the advantage bar, right? Like that thing that they tried on GP coverage that was like, well, who has the advantage bar now? I totally get why you try something like that in coverage, right? Because it's supposed to help make it easier for somewhat enfranchised players to be able to at a glance see what's going on in the match when they tune in, right? So they, they can catch up what's going on behind them and what's going on in the front. The idea of that like clear of an advantage is probably not really possible to get to, but somebody's ahead in every game, right? So how do you think that the best way to put these together can start to happen.
1: I personally see it, and I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say about this. Is I think it's very matchup and deck dependent. I mean, I know that you're looking for some universal tenets for us to subscribe to, perhaps, but I think that it comes down to understanding a deck's advantages that they seek to establish, and then how one can utilize that advantage to pressure the opponent and their deck that they're on and keep them off their own game plan. So I think it's, it's tempting and perhaps I'm maybe missing something uh, by not seeing these, these universals, but that's kind of, I I don't know if it's, it's, it's easy or possible to separate out an individual matchups, various advantages that play against each other. What do you guys think?
0: Yeah, I'm pretty aligned with Shane currently um, because ultimately All the decks want the same thing, which is just to win the game. And they do that in different ways. And I actually think that you can make an argument, you know, in Modern, that Burn and Tron, they're both trying to set up a mana advantage. They're just doing so differently. Tron, by having more resources to access because their mana engine is so huge, whereas Burn is trying to access uh, their resources faster than the opponent and be faster with their mana. And likewise, a control strategy might try to capitalize on card advantage more profitably than a creature-based deck, for example.
2: But is that, are those both, I mean, it sounds a little bit like one thing that you're saying is that they all, like maybe even control, tries to establish a mana advantage as well, right? And that it is kind of saying, everybody is trying to use their resources the most efficient way possible to be able to, let, let me tell you what I feel like maybe is a way to go with this. I kind of feel like something we could think about that doesn't get talked about a lot, but we've talked about a couple times on the show is actions as opposed to turns or spells. Right. So if you think about something that unifies like what everybody is trying to do, you are trying to do things in your game, right? And so you're trying to every deck is trying to execute some kind of plan. And it takes a certain number of things to happen for that plan to be executed, right? Like, burn has to cast seven burn spells is, like, the plan, right? And so the minimum threshold for burn to be successful is doing seven things, right? Outside of playing lands. I wonder if there is some kind of way to say, like, you know, I feel like I have... X number of actions left before my plan is complete, versus I think my opponent has X number of actions left until their plan is complete. And everything kind of ladders into that, right? Like, spending mana well, wrathing the board, surviving, things like that all kind of line up with an idea based around actions instead of everything else.
0: But you would also agree, though, that every deck has a different number of actions that it needs to perform to win, Yes. Right? That, that's why I, I love this concept to think about the game in terms of actions and, and try and boiling it down to these specific elements rather than looking at it from just like the in-game perspective of I'm at 20 life and I'm trying to get my opponent down to zero life. I do, though, think that if we focus too far into on any single element, then we sort of lose this whole breadth of experience that makes magic complex and interesting. Mm-hmm. And this isn't necessarily meant to be a cop out, but I think this is where we start to get to like this matchup lottery that I alluded to, and the paper, scissors, rock dynamic, because, like I said, the paper deck versus the rock deck isn't because the paper deck gets to draw more cards or gets to deploy its creatures faster. It's doing several different things to accrue advantage incrementally.
1: Dave, what you, what you talked about in terms of like the action economy made me think of worker placement board games. Or any board game that has a, a shared environment, I think it's a little bit easier to say who is using their actions more efficiently. And then try to stop your opponents from using their actions efficiently by potentially taking an action that they might want to that still advantages you. And I think it's easier to do it in that space where it's almost all open information typically in like a a worker placement board game. When we get, when we get to magic, we're operating in a different environment. And I think for me, it's more challenging to look at it that way because the, er, the actions that one needs to take are very different from game to game and from matchup to matchup. And so it's like saying like the person who's playing Agricola and the person who's playing like Terra Mystica are, are, they're playing two different games. Altogether, So I'm not, I'm not saying I disagree with you. I'm saying that I think that we m- might have to be a little bit more granular before we become more holistic.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I can understand that. I mean, I do think that, again, like trying to figure out a way to be able to look at my game and go, like, when I am playing Burn versus Tron... How do I know that I am ahead? How do I, like, what's the bottom line of that? And is there something that I can do that is a transferable skill from that matchup to other matchups? As opposed to just going, well, in the burn matchup versus Tron, you need to know this. This is the key factor. And in this one, this is the key factor. And in this one, this is the key factor. That might be just what magic is, but... I think that's important, Dave, um, because... What you're, I think, what you're
1: saying, what, what I'm hearing you say is, the concept that many decks, I think, there's a finite amount of advantages in the game of Magic.
2: We kind of went over them, right? Just to like recap, it's like
1: mana, cards, board state, you're kind of ongoing, ongoing resource advantage type stuff, like accruing, accruing ongoing advantage. And I think certain decks are looking to reach, like, fill various glasses of different sizes like so you know control has a big glass of card advantage and like board ongoing advantage stuff and burn has an extremely small glass of that and so like under understanding how full or empty you and your opponent's advantage glasses are like how the scales are tipping it's really it's really it's it's a it's a a, like three different scales right or maybe five different scales, where it's like, okay, well, this one's tipped in this fashion, but I don't care, because like that's that's not that's not an axis that my deck operates on.
0: Totally, and, and I think a good example of that is that burn versus Tron matchup, wherein Tron might be at like ten life, but because they can produce seven or more mana, they don't care about their life total.
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're never going to worry about that.
1: And then you can, and then knowing how far your opponent is to filling their glass all the way and then winning the game potentially is you can say, okay, well, I need to pour some of this out. I have to adapt my strategy to take them off their mana advantage. I have to adapt my strategy to take them off their board advantage. I have to start thinking about how I'm going to cast this sweeper or how I'm going to stop my life total from being attacked. And that's, I think, where we come down to back to the sort of the matchup discussion because that's really the axis I think that it operates on.
2: Yeah, I love this. I was tr- thinking about this last night. Like, I wasn't imagining glasses. I was kind of imagining like sliders. It's not. It's not the best metaphor, but no. It's. I think it's actually really good because it's sort of like somebody's trying to fill their c- fill a vessel with something so much that like they win, right? Yeah. And it's interesting though because like when you are control, when you are a blue, like a straight up blue white control deck. Sometimes when you play too hard into your card advantage plan, you you don't win still, right? And so there's an aspect where, like you said, you can't like just fill one of the glasses and then win. It's not like people actually have separate goals. You still have to defeat your opponent via life. But that doesn't mean that life is the most important one still. like That's the thing that I think is really mind-bending to people for a while when they start playing is like, that's not how you measure advantage, but it is the ultimate denominator of, like, if you want a game or not most times.
0: I, I do think that we're kind of circling around this divide right now, wherein I think, David, in, a, in an attempt to make this a, a good episode, you're looking for this unifying theory of advantage. But I'm currently at the position where I don't think we can find that. And I think Shane is somewhere in between, where it's he, he thinks you know, maybe it's hard to find, but it's possibly out there. He's a little uh, agnostic. Advantage I, I,
1: agnostic. I, th- I think that there are there are a number of columns. There's like adv- advantage columns out there, right? And we can go stand in the Stonehenge of advantage and appreciate them, and then say this one. Th- this one is how, like what my deck is trying to do. And I think that if people can bet- look at their deck. Everyone knows that they have to have a game plan, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at your game plan through the lens of what is my inherent advantage that this deck is trying to develop and then use to win, that's perhaps a stronger way than just saying, what is my game plan? Because then you understand, you can begin to understand how far, how far advantaged am I in a particular matchup and how... Or am I behind and then need to change my game plan in order to try to get that advantage back? And I think that's kind of what we're talking about in the rest of the episode.
2: Yeah, do you think that there's there's decks that are more sensitive to this kind of thinking than others? Like, one thing that I thought about a lot is that, you know, trying to accrue some kind of abstract idea of advantage is much more in line with, like, a mid-range deck to me in some senses because you have so many tools available. You can become a deck that attacks. You can become a deck that card, tries to use some card advantage to catch up. You can become a deck that disrupts. You know, I'm just thinking about John a little bit when I say this kind of stuff. Whereas there are other decks that are just like, I'm all in on card advantage glass like fill it up and then we're just going to go or you know storm that's just like I'm going to do as many actions as I can and I found a way to do actions for free and so because I accrue so many actions they I turn them into an advantage and then I win based off of that and they don't care
1: What's funny for me, Dave, I don't want this to sound like the Shane doesn't get what Dave is saying episode, but like for me, mid-range is like the hardest to understand advantage for because okay. like you said, it's so multifaceted and it needs to shift more. So it's like this, this less defined concept of advantage because – Jund, for example, you know, it wants to generate board advantage. It wants to generate card advantage. It wants to right. generate ongoing advantage through Planeswalkers and things like that. But it has to do this in such different ways versus an aggressive deck yeah. or versus a control deck. And so to understand your advantage as a mid-range player or to understand your position in a game versus a mid-range player can be really hard.
2: Yeah, and I'm not saying that. I'm but I'm saying it's more important to those type of decks, potentially because there are so many facets to them and understanding like which path is the right one to pursue right now. yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. I agree. You know, in thinking about this, there was one deck that actually stood out to me as, you know, the strategy that made thinking about advantage really easy and actually kind of linear. And that was Dredge. Because Dredge accrues all of its advantage through a single zone of the game, and that's the graveyard. And it's doing several things with the graveyard, but it's doing them all towards the service of building incremental advantage. Whether it's by having access to more than a typical hand size, or if it's having access to more resources than you can typically produce by just tapping the lands for mana by setting up a board state or pressuring your opponent's life total, yada, yada, yada. It's doing four or five different things that are true of lots of different games of Magic, but it's all focused in on this one particular zone of the game, which is the graveyard. Yeah. and And I think that kind of speaks to why maybe silver bullets are so effective against a deck like Dredge, because this one hate piece shuts off their entire plan and... More specifically, it shuts off all the different ways that they're able to accrue advantage. It's more than just having access to the graveyard. It's what does the graveyard actually mean? And that's why something like Jund is actually so much harder, because they're not necessarily interacting with a single zone of the game. They care about the board, they care about the hand, and they care about graveyards. Sometimes they even care about the stack.
2: Yeah. So are we starting to circle around this idea that really the... the best way to try to evaluate if you are winning a game or not is being cognizant of how well your deck is doing at performing its plan versus how well your opponent's deck is doing at performing its plan. Is that just kind of the bottom line for you guys? Yeah, and that's
1: the hardest thing because because that requires reps, it requires knowledge, it requires understanding game plans of as many decks as possible because, you know, every once in a while you run into a rogue deck, right? And you're like, I don't really even know what this deck's payoff is. Mm -hmm. You you might have an idea. And when, when you don't know like a payoff or you don't know the engine they're trying to develop um, then you feel in the dark in how advantaged you are in a game, the more you can understand the meta game. And that's more than even just the meta game. Like what decks are popular, and et cetera. It's about understanding like the actual you know not card by card, but at least the 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 advantages that the other deck is seeking to develop is the way you have to be able to look at it in order to understand your state in the game, and that's really hard,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, even beyond that is just sort of knowing what's possible for them to have, right, like even in a deck that you're unsure of like you know, most decks, you have to be pretty confident that they have some kind of creature removal, right? So the first creature you're going to play is almost always going to die kind of thinking, but much more complex as you ladder up from there because there's so many different ramifications to like, well, my opponent's a blue deck that looks like it has a lot of spells. So I know that they probably have mystic sanctuary in this deck. What happens if they start fetching mystic sanctuary with their, their extra fetch lands now, even though you haven't seen it yet and you don't necessarily identify what this deck is, you just have to know that it's coming and that's like meta game knowledge and also meta game knowledge. Yeah. You know, it's kind of both things.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that is the bottom line is sort of understanding the difference between plans, but being able to boil down those plans to these actual concrete definitions of the, you know, the five cups that are one big bowl of advantage. I I do want to throw a wrench in our conversation a little bit because while on the one hand I said that dredge for me makes thinking about advantage easy because they accrue all their advantage from a single zone, there's this whole other class of decks that I think make thinking of advantage actually quite challenging. And that's combo decks because combo decks can sometimes have this appearance of losing and they might literally be losing for an entire game. And then they just happen to draw the one card they need to just literally win on the spot. You know, imagine playing something like the Sahili Rai combo against a deck like mid range that can pick apart your hand and remove your Felidar sovereigns or whatever. And then you just happen to like play the card that lets you draw two cards and then you out of nowhere you find your two combo pieces and suddenly win. It doesn't mean that you had the advantage the whole game. It just means that you're able to turn the corner and gain that advantage really quickly or sometimes almost spontaneously.
1: I sort of saw this as like and maybe decks have inherent advantage where their cup is they have this have one big cup. And it's like the inherent advantage of the redundancy of my deck and how easy I can get to my combo. And so they're not developing the board. They're not developing... They, they, prob- they probably do develop some mana advantage, typically. I mean, that's one component of a combo deck, right? Is maybe like they want to have a, a Lotus Bloom so they can cast a, an Ad nauseum sooner than something like that. So I think that if you look closely... There are, there are some small components that go into a combo deck, like for Devoted Druid combo. They want to have some kind of board state. And it's not necessarily a beatdown board advantage. It is a, you didn't remove my creature. So now I have this Devoted Druid on the board, and you have to worry about me playing a Vizier of Remedies at any time. And so your, your game plan has to be tweaked around potentially surviving that combo. If for for ad nauseum they have some, they're building up a little bit of uh, mana advantage. You have to be worried about them comboing off. And so I think for for combo, it's just a different way of looking at what advantage means. And then part of it might just be the fact that it goes off X percentage of the time. And that's mm-hmm. the advantage of my deck.
2: So I have a slightly different take on what you're you're saying here, Shane. Which I think actually moves us to like another part of the discussion, which is okay, we've tried to identify to provide some kind of framework for people to think about how to identify whether they are having an advantage, whether their opponent is having an advantage, and things like that. My question is, um given that there are decks, especially in modern like combo decks, that are able to catch up very fast, how fragile is having an advantage in magic? You know, like how comfortable can you really get? Do you think that we there's a way to think about that?
0: I think this answer is format-specific. Just objectively format-specific. Because modern Advantage feels, intuitively, so much more fragile than in Pioneer or even, like, standard.
2: Yeah, I mean, think about the most kind of, like, stable format is probably limited, right? Where... Bomb, giant bombs, and sealed pools—kind of like aside—you can get into a position where it feels like the advantage you have over an opponent, or they have over you, is almost insurmountable. You know what I mean? And with your deck of commons, you're never going to catch up from a certain situation.
0: Yeah, and, and sometimes you might find those like positions even in a format, a high power level format like Modern, where it's just like you know you're super favorite in the matchup. Your hand is stacked with really great cards for the matchup, and you're just going to run away with the game almost no matter what they do. But Modern is where you start to have those situations, like the one I mentioned you know, in our last section, wherein you're winning the whole game, and then your combo opponent just happens to find that one card. Likewise, in Modern, you have both very strong silver bullets, but also very strong answers, and all in a format that can be pretty fast in general. And what contributes to that, in my eyes, is that you have things like free spells that make tapping out less punishing, or you have a wider card pool that lets you be more surgical in some of your counterplay between matchups. You might lose because that advantage was razor thin to begin with, and then you maybe even just stumbled for a turn. And it's like you were winning the first three turns, and then you drew bricks for, like, a turn or two in a row, and your opponent got to turn the corner in that small window of opportunity.
1: Yeah, Stan, I I definitely feel this, like modern, the games can feel so short and not even feel, they just can be so short. It's hard to get a bead on advantage in that situation. I think the longer the game goes on, the easier it is to determine uh, different positions of advantage. Games are so swingy in modern frequently because the, the the haymakers of the cards are are so they're so powerful and so strong. Like, can you, can, can you truly have advantage if like a single top deck can nullify almost all of it and swing the game back to your opponent? Or is that just kind of as advantage based on the format that you're in? Like, it's just like, sometimes it's, it's just generally more fragile. Like you said,
0: well, I sort of see it as the Delta between your two average decks kind of informs, A, the power level of a format, but also can inform how fleeting that advantage might be. You know, like, if on average two decks have really close power levels because they're both capable of, like, drawing or casting a haymaker that runs away with the game, or they're both capable of, like, having this crazy good silver bullet that nullifies an entire strategy, then that concept of advantage might run away from you faster. But it also might make being cognizant of like your micro decisions that draw you toward your advantage so much more important along the way because that margin of error is so much smaller that you have to be a lot more careful with the decisions that you're making every turn.
1: Dave, you played a lot of limited. Have you if you have you ever had like just one of those, you know, A plus tier limited decks and you were up against some some real clunkers and and you just, you just felt like it was almost impossible to lose. Like it was impossible to lose your advantage because your creatures were stronger. Your spells were more mana efficient. You controlled the board so much more easily. And, and you just ran away with the game. And
2: that's just, I think it's because that's like a high delta format, right? Uh, I, it's tough. Like the power level in two decks can be very different. Yes. <clears throat> Mostly because in the context where you play limited, you can have much more widely varied people. Yes. The skill, the skill delta is big. Right. You have to build your own deck, right? And that's that's hard for people and takes a lot of practice to think about what it takes to build a good sealed deck and what it takes to build a good draft deck and all those kind of things. Um, in constructed formats where people generally, or most of the people who play generally net deck in one form or another, you know, brewers aside... You know, those people are trying to learn how to be good pilots and they have the deck construction part sort of done for them. Um, yeah, I think that's true that sometimes the Delta can be smaller, but there it still exists, right? And so even though it might feel like it's smaller or take less time or is very compressed in a format like modern, it still makes me wonder like it still counts, right? There's still a difference there. And it's not really just about haymakers because if you are playing in a format like modern, you get sort of inured to the idea that what what's really an advantage in this context is me having an extra answer in my hand. And I'm waiting to push my plan forward because I know that you are going to try to push your plan forward. And so it's it's a little bit of that leveling that goes on where it's kind of like, what card I choose to play, I have to select very carefully or not play for that matter, because I'm waiting to like go to the next phase and trying to thwart you before I get my stuff online.
1: One of the things that I thought about when you asked this question about fragility was the fact that certain decks have more fragile advantages and, and, and longer or shorter windows in which the advantage is, is theirs. So like, Let's go back to the classic Burn, because it's, I think, a deck that people know and has very well-defined advantages. You know, Burn is redundant. It's designed to set the advantage up quickly, but not necessarily be able to hold that advantage and those, the various advantages for long. Whereas Control can struggle to set up their advantage engine and stabilize. That's the goal of Control, right? Is to get in a position where you're no longer very worried about your opponent enacting their game plan and then you stick these resources that develop ongoing advantage for you, whether that's in the shape in the form of a, a land, a planeswalker, an enchantment, all sorts of things, a sweeper. And I think decks that have these sticky long game advantages that are also reliably set up are when we see some of the most powerful decks in the game, right? Because oftentimes... a a sticky long game advantage can be challenging to set up. You have to have the right answers. Perhaps you have to have the answers that line up with what your opponent's doing. But then once you finally stabilize, you're usually pretty good. But if you can have both worlds where you are easily getting your engine going and then your advantage is, is so strong, like let's say a deck like Hogak where, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's violating so many rules so quickly and setting up such a insurmountable advantage on the board that it had to be banned.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was going to throw Oko out there as something that's like low resource, high utility, advantage over time. Those are the things that sort of tend to break the game a little bit, right? Where it's just too many checkboxes for too little cost. I do yeah. wonder, though,
0: whether or not that paper, scissor, rock mentality in Magic that we see more so in some formats than in others, how that informs the value of advantage within a single game. So for instance in modern, you know, I, I, my position in modern is that the lines are really blurry and even though like control might be favored against mid-range or big mana might be favored against mid-range, mid-range can still s- steal some games and that's kind of what makes modern perhaps appealing to some players because those advantages are razor thin and you have this wide breadth of tools to access that can help you come out from behind even if you're quote unquote unfavored.
2: Yeah, I still feel like this is a description of modern is something I said a long time ago on an interview with Ross Merriam when I was kind of like, modern is like drag racing, right? Where it's like, who can go faster on whatever plan they're trying to execute? How do I get to the endpoint the quickest?
0: I don't know how drag racing impacts my analogy, but I guess the question I'm trying to get to right now or by the end of the episode is whether or not that power level Impact on games of magic, whether it makes advantage more or less important. My theory is actually that it makes it more important. You know, when the lines are less clearly defined and you can turn a game around if you play it right, I feel like that's when you actually have to be so much more cognizant of your advantages along the way rather than in a limited game where your opponent drew Dream Trawler and there's just nothing you'll ever do.
1: I think it's easier to press your advantage in a format like modern. Because there's l- less variability in your deck, because all the pieces are strong. Like in a in a standard game or a limited game, maybe you know you have a few A plus cards, but you have a few you know C-, B minuses in there. And when all of your cards are executing your game plan in some way, shape, or form and developing your advantage bar or your advantage bars as they may be, then that's going to happen more routinely the higher powered the format is and the higher powered the decks in in there are. So I think it's easier in modern to say, if if I develop my advantage early and I can keep pressing that forward because I'm not going to draw a brick as frequently. In Pioneer, Maybe you have slightly less powerful cards. Some of them aren't as good in particular situations. They're not as universally well costed. You draw you draw that five drop when you have three mana.
2: I mean, I think it's interesting. So we've talked a lot about different types of advantage, how they relate to each other, the nature of of advantages. Let me ask you a couple of things as we sort of like maybe wrap up this part of the conversation. So it feels to me like as a group, we're sort of settling on this idea that it's very, very hard to have a single metric be something that indicates what player is more advantaged. Does that seem fair? Yeah, it's, it's contextual. Yeah, and it's contextual. Now, there's maybe if someone's thinking about like what are the group of things they should evaluate when trying to figure out if they're winning a game of Magic or not, it boils down to a, a couple of different things. One is the group of things that we talked about at the very beginning of this card advantage, mana advantage, board state advantage, life total comparisons. It's sort of one aspect of it. The the other aspect of that is understanding how all those factors add up for you and your opponent into a single plan that your deck is trying to do and just trying to take a snapshot of where you are in a game and figure out who is farther along in their plan. Right. So if you are trying to evaluate a game. You do have to do kind of like checking a whole bunch of little boxes, right? To figure this out. It's like, where are we at with the hands? Where are we at with life? Where are we at on board? All these things. Does the board even matter to my opponent? Yes or no. And then trying to like sum it up at the end to go, okay, I feel a little ahead or I feel like they're a little bit ahead right now.
0: Well, that summation that you're talking about. That's where intuition comes in, right? That's when we've had enough experience and we begin to understand like, what those little buckets are without even having to think about them, that we can start to just like fall back on the shorthands that we've established because we feel advantage, even if we're not actually counting the pebbles.
1: I think, I think, you know, we're casual spikes. I think there's, there's a few, there's a few levels that we can be as players. Right. And, and this is another LSV thing where I I think his, his three levels were like, have a plan or like, don't have a plan. Level, level one, that's where you start. You're just, you're just playing cards. Level two, have a plan. Level three, know your opponent has a plan and act in a way to disrupt that plan while also developing your own. I think what we're talking about is sort of a next level up on top of that. And it's building on top of that concept to say, I know my plan based on the facets of that plan. And I know my opponent's, facets of their plan so i can say well i know they're trying to make a lot of mana and then they're going to go over the top or i know they're trying to control my strategy but what are the pieces and steps that go into actually getting that particular advantage so you can say well tron only has two tron lands maybe they're not ahead on mana right now but you can also say they have four cards in hand And I know that they probably have some kind of Sylvan scrying or an egg or something to quickly turn the corner and enact their game plan. So what I'm getting at here is that what we're really saying is have a plan and understand your opponent's plan. But understand the components of those plans is the next step. And that really takes just a lot of time and you know, listening to this podcast, perhaps because we talk about these decks. That's what we talk. That's why we break the decks down in the way we do, so you can hopefully understand the components of a deck's plan and understand how it's trying to beat you, so that you can understand how to try to beat it.
0: And when we're talking about how we try to beat it, I think that's actually some of the very specific things that you get to take away once you start to and analyze where people are getting certain advantages, whether it comes down to something as broad as deck selection because you're opponents are on a deck or the meta is dominated by a deck that accrues advantage in this very specific linear way. Or maybe it's something more granular, like your sideboard cards. You know, you know that your opponent accrues advantage because of their aether vials. So you're going to side in something like artifact hate to try to reduce the amount of advantage they're able to generate through this one specific piece of technology. It might even inform your mulligans, you know, either in game one, if you know the matchup or beyond that, if you don't, because you know that you're going to get an advantage if you're able to draw a card that lets you easily two for one your opponent and your opponent struggles to come back from those two for ones. Maybe mulliganing aggressively toward that type of card is one of the ways that you're trying to generate advantage for yourself.
2: Yeah, so I think we are ready to move on to the second part of this the shorter second part of this which is now that we have thought a little bit about the dimensions of advantage what do we get to do with that once we feel like we have an assessment of where we are in a given game of magic if we know that we're winning or know that we're losing what can we do so the first thing is the thing to keep in mind is that you should change what you're going to do based on where you think you are in the game right don't continue to just go on autopilot and that's Maybe obvious to say, since we are all playing a strategy game together and listening to content about it, but this is where the most meaningful decisions in Magic, I think, come in, right? Is recognizing something has changed, figuring out a way to identify what you need to do as a result of it, and executing on a new modified plan.
0: Or maybe recognizing that nothing has changed and that your intuition might be wrong. You know, imagine being Mm. a control player that has a five-mana Planeswalker and they have Five mana available to them, maybe tapping out for that planeswalker is not correct, even though you may feel like you've had the advantage over this whole game because you've been one for one and with their resources. But, you know, in some cases, your plan is not to actually tap out, but it's actually to find a way to maintain that advantage because you can now perform multiple actions as opposed to just banking on one big action.
1: Yeah, I think you're typically operating in three parts of the game, right? It's either you have the advantage and you want to keep it. You don't have it and you need to get it back or you're at parity. Right. And that's, that's where the most nuance comes in is like, how do, what do I do at parity to regain like a, a toehold here and start trying to press any advantage I can create? I think that one of the, like I mentioned earlier is like this, this window concept is like, how long can I develop a window for, like, do I, do I need to, to go fast? And then I, I know I'm going to have a short window to operate. Does my deck typically create longer, but maybe less open windows? Like Maybe like a mid-range style deck where it's like, I'm going to have a lot of tools against a lot of strategies. I'm going to be able to play to the board. I'm going to be able to disrupt the hand. I'm going to be able to get a little resource advantage through my planeswalkers and then slowly open that wider and wider. Or do I open it really slow and then it stays open? Right, that's sort of like three three types of typical deck that we can talk about, and I think that it's really like Stan said. I think that it's it's important to let that inform your in game and metagame decisions ultimately. And I, I know that's what we're trying to get at here. And I think there's two ways we can talk about it. Is like how do we regain advantage, and how do we retain advantage? So should we talk? Let's. they want to talk about regaining it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you guys have a lot of thoughts here around regaining the advantage. I think the big thing that I thought about here was just given the discussion that we had earlier about how narrow these advantages are, I just sort of wanted to take a minute to remind people that you want to win the game, you don't want to regain the advantage, right? And so what you don't want to do is that if you are behind, suddenly get super reckless and not think about ways that your deck might catch you up, in the medium term by throwing away resources in the short term. You know. So I think you can't always throw several cards at a problem and hope to catch up. What you have to do when you're behind is try to figure out how to get more out of what you have. right? So once you've identified where you are in the game, generally you're going to be behind on resources in one form or another. And so throwing extra resources at it probably is not going to help you catch up.
0: So are you saying that when I spend three lightning bolts to deal with a single worm coil engine, I'm doing it wrong?
2: I mean, it's really <laughs> tough, right? Because that is the, I mean, you got to do more than three, right? Like,
0: well, I only care about the death touch token.
2: You should be, if you have that many lightning bolts, you should be caring about the life lifelink token, not the death touch one, but, the but, life but game, um, right. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean you're necessarily doing it wrong. But sometimes people tend to be like, well, I guess I just need to like chump attack and lose some of my board state so that I can keep pressing damage down so that I catch up in the life total war. And like, that's not always the right thing to do. So I think you need to be really cognizant of your resources when you're in that situation. Or if you're like, I'm a couple of cards back, you know, I have some horizon lands so let me just sacrifice all of those and draw cards, and then all of a sudden you're mana constrained on all the turns after that. That's another like short-term burst into long-term problems kind of position you can find yourself in. So don't dig a deeper hole. I guess it's the only thing I'm saying.
1: Yeah, I think that's valid. I think that we might be, we might be jumping ahead a little bit because I think that you to understand how to get advantage back, you have to understand like what tools your deck has to do so. Right, so you can understand if you're behind. But let's say, let's say I'm a newer burn player, and it's like, oh man, this counter, this counter, this this control deck keeps countering everything I'm doing. Do I just keep throwing burn spells at them and hope that they run out of counter spells? When that's not made, not necessarily the best way to kind of approach the problem. Like maybe you sandbag some spells and then cast many at once in one turn because your spells cost less than theirs, but they can't counter everything. So, rather than try to just do a one for one, you eventually just sort of overload their their action economy that they have over you, and you're able to do more actions than them, and you get an action advantage, and based off of your mana advantage. So I think that's that's just one example. And I keep going back to Burn because one, I have experience with it, and two, because I think it's easy to understand. But I think
2: it's easy to talk about for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So it's one of those things where it's like you know you're on the back foot, you know you've lost advantage, but you have to, I think, understand the ways in which you can then get some of that back in the matchup you're in. And that's challenging. I think like I think part of it, some of the things that I think about are like playing to a certain draw in your deck that you know can swing things. So maybe you're, like you said, you're not attacking in, trying to get one to two points of damage in. You're holding back, you're you know representing maybe like a double block on something, and you're trying to draw to something that you know can potentially swing things back in your favor. Maybe it's a sideboard card or a silver bullet card. You know, do you, you have to know how to use your limited resources that you talked about to make the best play. Are you using your Path of Exile, Path to Exile, rather, on their Dryad of the Elysian Grove? Or are you saving that for a Primeval Titan? Like, if you have limited resources, you have to know what how best to use them to get the most advantage you can back out of them.
0: You know, I'm totally guilty of this, but I think a lot of players have this tendency to look at cards and games as a means to an end. And Specifically, I'm thinking about something like rest in peace versus dredge. And my intention is not to reinvent the wheel. Like rest in peace is great against dredge for the reasons I listed previously. It it helps negate a lot of the different incremental ways that they generate advantage. Whether it's resource, whether it's board, whether it's life total, etc. But what I'm trying to say is there are some situations where It's not necessarily that you need a specific silver bullet or sideboard card to start to regain advantage or maybe undo the advantage that your opponents are, you know, playing toward. Sometimes it's a matter of knowing how to beat them at the advantage that they're trying to get. You know, if you're Burn playing against Dredge, your answer might not necessarily be to try to find that silver bullet graveyard hate piece. It might be to just try to actually outrace their resources, outrace their board presence, outrace their life total. So it's not always about undoing what your opponent is doing. Sometimes it's actually about making sure that you get that same level of advantage, but better than they do.
2: It's kind of like buckling down. We're like, ah, the plan isn't going great right now, but maybe if I just push a little harder, I can can actually still get there.
1: What this makes me think about is the concept of like, make them have it type thing. So I think when you're behind you have to play a little bit more recklessly i think like you know i think you're the concept you mentioned dave is you know don't be too loose right don't just throw stuff at it but if you're behind you're not going to probably get too far ahead by always trying to play around everything you your opponent could possibly have right
2: yeah let's let's define reckless though
1: well that's hard It's hard to do
2: no, no, no. But, but look, I think you and I are talking about two different things. Okay. So I am saying don't be reckless with your resources. Sure. I think, in, and tell me if I'm wrong, I feel like what you're saying a little bit is, I mean, hey, sometimes you do have to recognize that they have to have it. But maybe what you're saying is you need to open yourself up to lower percentage plays working out because they're the only thing that's powerful enough to get you there.
1: Yeah. Like, you like let's say let's say you're playing against a control strategy and you're a creature-based deck, right? And you're like, okay, Um, my clock is such that I can't play around Supreme verdict. Like I just can't like my, my clock stinks. They're going to have a walker that's going to bounce something. I've got to play to the board and it's, it's potentially likely that they have the Supreme verdict, but I'm not going to win if I don't, I'm not going to win if I don't play to the board or if I don't, if I just assume they're going to have a counter spell every turn and I just sit back and don't cast anything and give them like the, the time advantage, give them the action advantage, back to them, you're just continuing to fill their various cups up by your, by, by your inactivity.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's more playing, it's kind of like playing to your outs a little bit more so than it is being, being reckless, right? Like, it's sort of understanding, the only way I'm going to win this match is if I go runner, 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 lightning bolt three times, and like, that's it. So I better play like that's what I'm going to win because I'm not going to get there any other way. Right on. So how about if you have the advantage, do you even try to stay ahead? Like, Is that a thing that you think about or is it really just continuing to execute your game plan?
1: Something you said earlier, I believe it was Stan, made me think of myself where it's like, I already have the advantage. Why am I going to open myself up by casting another powerful spell, and I, I don't do I don't ha- I don't play a lot of five mana planeswalkers in my games. But let, let's go back to the, you don't. Let's go back to the, you the, the try board it. advantage. Well, I guess I,
2: I guess I do I do in mono green walkers and pioneer. But um, our new theory is that Shane should try casting more five mana planeswalkers in in modern. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm you know what we're gonna do.
1: An, let's do an episode on that where it's like Shane Shane tries to become a, a control player. Um, Shane Shane makes decisions the episode
0: we did that we dive we did a dive
1: into blue eyed control (laughs) i liked it it was fun it was good we had had a good time so one of the weaknesses in my games is that i i continue to play to the board even when i have board advantage because i want to sort of retain that board advantage it's like well i i want to be able to keep doing this what if they untap and play two creatures and i'm behind on board now and my whole tempo is lost but by keeping playing to the board when I don't need to, I definitely opened myself up to sweeper effects that I just like completely overlooked my opponent might have access to. I didn't need to play that creature out at all. It wasn't wasn't it wasn't changing my clock. It wasn't changing the effect on the game, and all it did was let them do something to blow me out. Or I attacked with I you know, you swing out with everything that you don't even need to. Like this is like, you know, 101 type stuff where it's like I'm just I'm just going to swing out. I've got lethal. When you only need to swing with your like three man of like your three power flyer, right? And then they maybe have like some crazy lifelink trick that just blows you out on the ground, and you're like, "Oh,
2: that's idiocy." They play blessed alliance with escalate or whatever, and they gain four life and make you sack a guy, and you're like, "Oh, I die on the crackback."
1: Yeah, so it's like it's just taking a second to assess things. I think sometimes and just being like, "What." What can I lose to? That's the easiest question to ask sometimes. It's like, what, what, what's in the realm of possibility that they're representing that I can lose to, and how do I avoid losing to it?
0: So Shane, I feel like what you're doing now, though, is actually talking about that means-to-an-end concept that I referred to earlier, where you're thinking about specific cards or specific interactions, wherein... I kind of think that the point we're trying to get to is that you're not just thinking about what you can lose to on a card by card basis, but also why am I losing because of what my opponent is doing to accrue advantage? You know, what can I lose to is more than just will my opponent have a blessed alliance? It could also just be like what am I losing because my opponent is able to gain advantage by playing to the stack more so than I can.
1: I think it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, getting back to the concept of knowing your opponent's game plan is knowing how they can accrue advantage back from you. What tools do they have to do so? Is it a, is it a red deck that plays Anger of the Gods, And that's going to be their big way to get counter advantage back, to get board advantage back, and then turn the corner on you. you know, is that the Blessed Alliance example? Is that the Supreme Verdict example? Um, is it runner-runner-runner you know, example? Where their advantage is that they have redundancy in their deck. Is that the combo example where they have so many redundant pieces that you need to hold up counter magic because if you let your guard down, they could they have eight draws to
0: finishing you off? Magic magic is hard. It is hard. What do you think, Dave? Do do you think we're approaching a unified theory or do you think we're just making it more complicated?
2: I think we are debunking a unified theory of advantage. Uh-huh through this discussion is what it feels like to me and you know I tried to do my best to be the representative for that particular school of of thought but I I have my doubts after this and I think realistically what we're looking at here if we want to start trying to tie everything together here is that there may not be a way to unify advantage through a single kind of metric or piece of vocabulary to think about to help you assess whether you are winning or not but what we keep coming back to over and over again is that it's about awareness in detail of plans, right? And so the best way to figure out if you are winning a game of Magic or not is to be aware of what you're trying to do, be aware of what your opponent is trying to do, and and force yourself to, in detail, evaluate the aspects of how those plans interact with each other and how they're developing in a game. Maybe it sounds like, duh, but... <laughs> we, we found a way to talk about it for an hour anyway yeah
1: (laughs) i mean i think i think it's duh but i think that there's a reason that players get better by playing more and it's because you understand plans in more detail and i think that begins with your own which is like how do i develop and use my own advantage and then it becomes how do i do so while stymieing my opponent's game plan and hindering their advantage engines and then it becomes more nuanced, where it's like, I understand individual components, I understand potential sideboard cards, I understand lines of play, I understand the key components to their deck that I need to disrupt, and then that just makes you a better player.
0: I want to bring it back to a topic that we kind of led this whole discussion off with, which is intuition. And where do we get from the concept of advantage and understanding about these micro decisions and and these cups of advantage to the point where you can start to make these decisions intuitively because you feel that advantage even if you can't necessarily put it to words. And, and, and here's an example. like I've totally had games, be it playing Control, be it playing Ponza, where I am look at my opening hand and it's like, I don't think I can lose because I can see that I have a specific plan of attack. I know what my opponent's going to do. There's just no way that they can deal with the resources I'm going to deploy at the rate that I'm going to deploy them, and I'm going to generate advantage through like various means, be it interacting with resources being by presenting threats that they can't answer. Is that just a matter of like playing a bunch of different decks against a bunch of different other decks and having like this cosmic galaxy brain understanding of like all the moving pieces that can happen within a format? Or can it just be something as simple as playing a single deck across like years of play that you can start to understand how you generate advantage in your own specific way?
1: This makes me think about our, your goal discussions, Dan, where you were like, I want to get really good at just like one, one deck. Right. And I think that that leads to that, that cosmic brain that you just talked about, right? Like we've, I think we've all had those games that don't happen as often as we want, where it's like. I know I'm going to do this, and I know my opponent's going to do this. I'm going to cast this spell. I'm going to do this, and the game's going to work out exactly as I planned. Like I, I had a deck, I, I had a game like that with with uh, the the Burn deck and, and Pioneer, where it's just like the game's going to play out in this way because my opener looked good, and it did, and that felt like it's like I knew exactly what was going to happen because I just understood what the opponent was trying to do, and I understood what I was trying to do. And that is what I think you'd love to get to in every game.
2: But I think the best way to do that, to get yourself there to every game, if you are trying to figure out how to get better at that skill so that it becomes intuition, is to go back to the cups that Shane was talking about and think about that. Like if you are trying to figure out what's going on in a game, do a check of all of those four different qualities who has more cards? Who has more life? Who has more material on board? Who's farther along with, with mana advantage? Who's cast more spells or spent more mana this turn or this game to try to figure out where you, you're standing right now because that can help inform where you should go next and help you develop the ability to do that without having to look around the board and check all those things. When you, when you learn how to drive, I feel like, you know, not a doctor, but I feel like they were kind of like, make sure you check the mirrors. Like when you're doing something, look in the side mirror, look in the rear view mirror, da-da-da-da-da. Like you get these kind of like procedures that are um, at first something you have to remind yourself to do. And then eventually it just becomes instinct. And I think if you feel like you're not good at that instinct, try that look at all those aspects of, of advantage, try to cross it with time, and then try to establish a picture of plans based off of those.
1: It's like by being a careful player, you can become a less careful player because it's intuition.
0: Yeah. Whoa. That's good. Shane, that is nice. I wish we had saved that for episode 69. <laughs> all right. Well, this was interesting. This was thoughtful. I'm, I'm excited to listen back to this one. Because this feels like one of those episodes where I'm gonna I'm gonna hear it. I'm gonna be like, we should have said this one thing, and then it would have cracked this whole case wide open.
1: This, this one simple trick. This one yeah. simple trick. Your opponents don't want you to
2: know. I mean, it's a little bit of like when Spinal Tap shows up and plays the Freeform Jazz Odyssey at the fest. They're like, we're just gonna do Freeform Jazz Odyssey for. But I think there's gonna be there's good bits in here to to enjoy and listen to. Yeah, and listen, maybe
0: some games you can never draw the advantage because you brought a kitchen table homebrew to the Pro Tour and you lost a bet and you're just going to have to take those bad beats and you know, make a podcast about it. And th- that's your advantage. That's the content advantage. But that wraps up our piece of content for this week. Thank you, Jake, again, for submitting such a really excellent and interesting and unique prompt for your top-tier patron episode. We hope you did you proud. Everyone else, let us know what you think about our analysis, if you have ideas that we can maybe take it to the next level, if you think there's any important points that perhaps we may have missed. Because we don't think there's a unifying theory, this is a conversation that can go on ad nauseum. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern or pioneer, you can tweet us at the dive down all one word or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. We're joining at the top tier lets you decide an episode topic, I believe, twice a year. Is that right?
1: Uh sounds right.
0: Sounds right. Twice a year. You can be a podcaster too. I mean, we'll do the talking, but you can raise the questions.
2: You can be an executive producer.
0: You can find us over at patreon.com slash the dive down. Of course, shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring our show. Sign up for Mana Traders using promo code the dive down, all one word, for 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. Mana traders is about to launch their own tournament series soon. Keep an eye out for that. And if you use your Mana traders account to enter that tournament, you get better price support as well. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, stay inside and win more games!
1: Still hot. Why are you, Why are you running
0: hot? I've been working out.
2: You sound so good. You and Dave are much more even
1: now. So great.